This program is sponsored by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Students and faculty aren't just ready for change at the Scripps College, they're hungry for it. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Linda Torado, author, journalist, and activist, who has written and spoken around the globe about what it's like to be poor in America. She now has a new project. She's seeking truth about our democracy by traveling the country and interviewing voters in the last presidential election. She's trying to find their current reaction to the Trump administration and to the stalled U.S. Congress. You and I talked, I think, last time it was after the election, but before the inauguration. It was in November. Yeah, and I was horribly depressing, I'm sure. I was uh, not uh, cheery. Well, I'm less cheery now. I don't know about you. I, I'm i about to go on assignment to talk to Trump voters. And, you uh, are? Yeah. For yeah. L? So um, for L and for this other project that I'm doing. So uh you know, I'm I'm really excited about the body slamming. I think that's uh, it's it's um, you know, I've been waiting for an excuse to bring my steel toes back out into fashion with the miniskirts and the docks because we're going back to visit the '90s anyway. So I'm I'm I, I guess excited for that if I'm going to put a cheery face on it. This this whole body slamming of a reporter in in Montana is frightening to me. Yeah, well, and and here's another thing to think about is it's not just body slamming a reporter. When you look at the power dynamic here, that is a large man, Gianforte. He's not a tiny dude. Um, ben Jacobs is. He's like 100 pounds dripping wet. I saw and he's He's the soft-spoken, like, sweetest, least aggressive-looking person ever. Um, and, and so the, the dynamic of this very large man body slamming a very small man for asking about, like, the – budget. <laughs> well, no, it was <laughs> about health care. Take a yeah, stand. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you you were waiting to take a stand until the uh, Congressional Budget Office came out with their report. The report's right. out. I mean, and, and so here's the other uh, dynamic in there is that Ben Jacobs had not long ago written a fairly harsh piece about Gianforte's ties to Russia and his business ties to Russia. And that's in The Guardian. You can go look at that. Um, and and so there's that layer in there as well of this is a guy, um, you know, who works for this outlet that is, is writing these pieces about Russia. And that's not really a place you want to be tied to right at the moment, no. um, generally, if, you, if you've managed to escape that so far. So... Well, let's go back to early in the administration. We've <laughs> been at so this for four discuss. months. Oh, God. He brings in the coal miners. Uh, you know, it's like, let's let's bring in the props. Mm. He brings in the coal miners and then signs this executive order and tells them that they're all going back to work as a result of this Turns order. out he's not magic. I've talked to researchers. I've talked to community organizers. That's just not going to happen. 
No, no, and it never was. And nobody, even in the coal industry or lives in coal country, thought it was. Like, it was some magical thinking people got engaged in. And and I think what they bought from him when he said, I'm going to bring back coal jobs, was not that they actually literally thought they were going to go back to the mines, so much as it signaled a kind of awareness that that, that needed to be addressed. There needed to be jobs for coal miners. Um, and I think that they, they kind of read what they wanted to into his use of them as props, because I don't think many people saw the coal miners getting trotted out at the you know rallies and thought that he really cared about their plight. I don't think most people thought that, um, except for you know the people that believed him. But no, there's not going to be coal jobs coming back, and there's not going to be manufacturing jobs coming back. And even if they do, they're going to be you know tech sector and roboticized. So it's going to be a different kind of of industrialization than we're used to, no matter what we do. You live in this area and uh, shifting gears to healthcare. Southern Ohio, all of Kentucky, all of West Virginia, very high numbers of people who use the Affordable Care Act, uh, a.k.a. Obamacare. Uh, or Medicaid, which is being absolutely gutted so, in the budget. So, so what are their feelings about the the – what Congress is doing, or or do they care? I don't think most people understand it. I think, you know, once you get into the policy weeds of we're going to repeal and replace, well, we're going to have a partial repeal. Okay, well, we're kind of replacing it. Um, let's wait for the CBO scoring. No, we don't like the CBO scoring. Let's send it back and get a different CBO score. Well, this CBO, I mean, when you're talking to people who are, are working and particularly who live rurally, um, you know, we we lose two hours a day to transit just getting back to work and forth. And so a, a lot of the time um, and I've noticed this, actually, I have to go out of my way to be informed in the country, whereas in the city, when I'm visiting cities or working, I'm constantly just checking the news on my phone because I've got 20 minutes to kill before the train comes. Right. Um, right. You know, and here I drive. And so I listen to audiobooks, And so I'm much more literary when I live in the country. <laughs> and I'm a lot better informed when I'm staying in cities, um, which is just a weird regional tweak. But, you know, I think I don't understand what's going on with the CBO <laughs> scoring. <laughs> and, and I don't think that anybody quite understands what may or may not happen because all of this is a fever dream of lunacy and it, it is um, not well run. It is not well considered. We don't have a government that's fully seated. We've got something like what? Nearly 500 yeah. integral needed positions haven't been filled. So there's nobody advising on policies. So then they send out these documents and they're passing these bills. Um, you know, the guy that, that wrote the bill is in tears saying, I didn't know it was going to, to do anything to people with pre-existing conditions, which is so disingenuous. You could almost your head almost explodes because the dude wrote the bill. Yeah. And and so in that kind of, of, of crazy um, news wash on top of Russia and, and who's being indicted today and like what part of the national security apparatus is, is you know, under question now. And then on top, you know, it's just it's, it's too much, I think, for people to really understand what's at stake here um, because I have a hard time following it. But, but can't people break it down to basics? I mean, when they hear 23 million people would be dropped from health care over 10 years and 13 to 14 million in the first year. 
Yeah, that that's pretty startling that premiums have a likelihood of increasing, startling. And then the other one is, you know, everybody I've heard said, hey, you don't want to be 64 years old and have a pre-existing condition, which most 64 people, year right. old people have. You know, uh, you don't want to be 64, have a pre-existing condition and be lower or middle class because it, it's... You're going to be hosed, you, yeah. yeah. I think, well, I mean, I don't think anybody's uh, particularly thrilled with it. Um, his supporters are more inclined to believe that there's some kind of balancing for it, like, oh, we're going to get a bunch of massive tax cuts and credits and we're going to go back to weird exchanges. Um, I think that a lot of people didn't understand the ACA well enough to begin with um, and and what was going on. We hadn't had a chance for it to normalize yet. And so for it to be more changes, people are just kind of throwing their hands up and going, well, here we go again. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they want pre-existing conditions to be a thing that can get you stopped from getting insurance or that they want their premiums to go up. Um, but, you know, understand that the narrative for a lot of folk that are, are consumers of a particular section of media, they're under the impression that the ACA was an utter failure and that even if it was working for them, it's not working for millions of other Americans. And so, you know, that kind of thought of, of well, how are we thinking of the ACA to begin with really influences how you feel about the Republicans coming in, which is exactly the thing they promised they'd do was, was pass this bill. And so this, for them, is fulfilling a major campaign promise. And so I think that, that people feel one way about their own situation, and then they feel another way about about the national politics of it, which is very uh, tribal and, and, and very factional. Well, when it's in the Senate now, and God knows what will come out of that, but it, it just it strikes me as very, very interesting. If you just look at Kentucky as a microcosm, and Kentucky was a high user of the mm-hmm. Affordable Care Act, You've got Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul mm-hmm. <laughs> as senators. <laughs> I yeah. think that I, I think that at this point, looking for logic in politics is a lot like trying to catch rain. I'm still trying. I yeah. I know, but I I don't think that there is any. I think that there there are logical people still, but the vast majority of our politics is being driven by emotion and fear right now, and and those aren't logical places to start. And so you've got, you know, for example, um, people are, are legitimately afraid of the press and the media. Now, I don't know why that is, excepting that they've been whipped into that fervor, right, by a bunch of demagogues. But we've gotten to the Enemy of the people. Right. You know, that phrase. Right. Enemy of the media the enemy of the people. Well, I mean, Trump used to, during his rallies, if you look at the at the, at the optics of it, and, and we hate the word, but there you are, it's the word we use. If you look at his rallies, he would actually put the press in this little box, and then he'd have everybody that was surrounding them turn around at one point during the rally and say, don't you hate those guys? Boo those guys. It was it was Orwellian. And, and it's why I started calling, um, you know, we really need to be on the lookout for nascent fascism and, and not that I think that you know, Donald Trump is particularly a fascist, but I think that we're moving in that direction of demagoguery. I think we're moving in that direction of emotion. And I think that when we get to this kind of know-nothing populism, 
um, where where facts are under dispute and whether or not something is true depends on whether you're reading Fox or CNN or MSNBC. Um, you know, those are the conditions in which people start to impose order on society because there is none. And and in that shifting kind of frightening emotion and fear driven situation, the order they impose is never pretty. And so that's kind of been the the concern that I've had. But you know, we're also moving to a time where you have foreign dictators bringing their personal security guards to beat up Americans on American soil. And when you see those images of, of, of foreign leaders' personal security beating up on protesters and journalists, um, and then you compare it to the journalists being body slammed, and you think about all of the unprecedented things that have happened in the last four months. Like the, the, I was watching, I, I tend to sit down and watch all of the, the comedian news shows at once. Like I have one day where I just watched John Oliver and all a week's worth of daily show and Seth Meyers and all that. And um, the pattern that happened last week was every single one of them was running segments on we can't even keep up. This was supposed to be like a news ending story. This should have been a like this is a scandal to end all scandals, and then we forgot about it by the next day because there is a new one. Um, and and so I think that you know trying to look for logic in in this particular time is going to be very hard. There's going to be people that stick to their principles, but the environment shifting so quickly that that you know logic is difficult because what was true yesterday is not true today. The fascism that you're talking about, how do you think that plays with the average person out there? Do they see it? Do they feel it? Do they know it? Do they care? I don't I don't think so because it's not um, – you know, America was never going to fall to a swift, violent coup. The, com- the country's too big. Um, de Tocqueville talked about, you know, how America worked and why, and, and one of it was its geographic size actually makes it hugely prone to civil unrest, but very unlikely that, you know, there's going to be a swift, you know, change in government because of the democracy. And I, I think that it's happening very swiftly, but also very stealthily. Which is to say, oh, we're going to have investigations. We're going to have a lot of investigations and we're going to root it out. It's going to be like Watergate. We know what this is going to be like. It's going to be like Watergate. Only is it like Watergate when we're not sure that the FBI director was just closing all of his meetings with the very government he's supposed to be investigating? And if we're having to, you know, have people recuse themselves left and right because the business is that entangled. I was just thinking this morning that. Maybe we're watching the shiny object as as a population, and the shiny object moves around the room. It's like a laser with a cat. Uh, it, it it moves around. the The core is that we had a foreign power that historically has been an enemy interfere with the core of our democratic process, which is an election. People. St- don't seem to be upset about that. Now, maybe it's my generation who lived through the Cold War, but but that's upsetting to me. These other shiny objects uh, I have interest in, most assuredly, but that's not the core for me. I think everybody kind of picks the thing that is most worrisome to them because, you know, what you're talking about is dueling constitutional crises. 
and and everything at this point is hitting the level of a constitutional crisis of what do, like we're the 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 body politic you didn't used to hear in in my lifetime as far as I knew no matter how ugly it got um people didn't used to ask each other what the line of succession was right like that wasn't common knowledge right. we didn't all know it was going to be Orrin Hatch eventually right, <laughs> right. um and and you know, from my perspective, we my generation is having a big old discussion over whether or not it's proper to punch Nazis. And I'm like, OK, but I thought that was the one thing we all agreed on was like the greatest generation. Like we punch Nazis. We don't let them have like parties in the Capitol. We punch them. Um, in fact, we're willing to send generations off to die to defend that principle of punch Nazis. And, and I think that w- w- once you're to that level – I don't know that we all live in the same country anymore. I think we're all in the same geographic area bound under the same federal law, but I'm not sure we all live in the same country. Um, that, that, flesh that out for me because I, I find that very interesting. Well, that's actually what I'm doing this year. Um, is So there's this quote that's been killing me for years and I've been trying to remember and it, it wound up being de Tocqueville and I'm going to butcher it in the in the paraphrasing. But essentially the, the, the thought was that a country that is too split – in, and that has vastly different experiences from each other is never going to be able to find enough common ground, even if their interests are the same, because they look so different and because they're so often opposed. And they'll never be able to find that common ground. And that's where you're going to see a rundown in a large democracy. So that was the, the downfall of a large democracy. Um, and the more I traveled around the country talking to people about this stuff for various assignments or just because I always ask impertinent questions, um, the, the more I found that people really do are, are falling into such factionalism. Um, and this is happening, you know, there, it's online, you can see it um, yeah. expressed, but it's also offline. Like that's happening in society where people who should agree with each other are at each other's throats over this imagined wide gulf of difference that's really 10%, right? But they think they're they're on opposite sides. Um, and when everybody's on guard against everybody, that's not a great place for reconciliation and adult discussion, Right. And without that, we are not going to be able to get through what is clearly a constitutional crisis because half the country has lost faith in any government we put into office. It's it's we we can't keep working like this where no matter who gets in, somebody's up in arms and and half of the country is obsessed and demanding that nothing happen because, you know. Well, people wonder why. Trump keeps having political rallies. Uh, he's going to have another one in Iowa. Here, oh, he needs the crowds. Here, here he shortly. It, n- not only from a personal point of view, but his advisors, um, I would think, encourage it because it breeds this division. It it allows the division to continue and not just be an election phenomenon. And it's also uh, really good politics because then you get cheering crowds and tons of people out supporting him on the news that evening and you get him at his best. He's always 
performed best in front of an adoring crowd. So, you know, here he is out there making all his points, going ad hominem, feeding red meat to his base, and people are loving it. So then it combats the narrative of people really dislike that and this isn't what the country's supposed to be, Um, which, you know, is kind of why I say it really – um, there's a meme that went around on Twitter amongst people that was uh, Fox News stole my parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was people who had parents that maybe were a little conservative, <laughs> but were rational human beings right. um, and watched Fox News all through their 70s. And now they're in their late 70s, early 80s. And essentially nobody wants their they're like bitter, yelling, paranoid old people. And and these are people who used to be rational and loving and wonderful. And and the aging isn't the problem. It wasn't that. It was it was this uniform set of behaviors of elderly people who've spent a decade and a half watching Fox News. Um and and so having to come past all of that is going to require an understanding or at least a a common declaration that we are at the end of the day all still Americans. Because even if you hate Trump and you think all of his voters, you know, you get this from the left of, oh, I hope they lose all their health insurance. What is that going to help? How is that progressive? You want universal health care unless you disagree with the people that are getting it? No, that's not how we're going to do this. If you can go to folk and say, look, at the end of the day, we're all Americans and I believe in your humanity to the point where we're still going to have to deal with you. Even if we won, even if I won personally and everything mm-hmm. I ever dreamed of for America was instituted and, and everybody who disagreed with me was quarantined and disallowed from speaking, that's going to be a lot of millions of people I got to warehouse and feed and deal with. So, you know, are we going to come to the understanding and acceptance that there are millions of people who, who are on that side and that we have all been propagandized and we have all been lied to and we are all completely confused right now. And maybe the thing is to start from, are we a country or not? Because we don't seem to be able to agree on anything except for that the country's in trouble. And so if that's the one thing that everybody on every side can agree to and it's, it's, it's patently obvious, then maybe we start with, okay, great. What do you mean by the country? Do you mean all the people in it? Do you mean the political system? Do you mean the the terrain? What do you mean? So my project is actually um, stealing as much from de Tocqueville as I can um, very openly (laughs) and uh, wandering around asking very impertinent questions to people all over the country about what do you think America is? And do you think, you know, where do we go from here? Um, because regardless of your opinions on Donald Trump, half the country hates half the other country right now, and it's getting violent. It is getting violent. This is this is the danger zone. This is not something where you start playing and punditing and all of that. This is we are going to have more and more physical assaults. We are going to have more and more violence. We have journalists being arrested. We have people being thrown downstairs. We have like it's getting bad. So what are we going to do to stave that off? Or are we going to just full on do it? Because I say we should do one or the other. But this this pretending this we're ground. not doing it yeah. and then still doing it is is hurting a lot and helping nobody. The Trump voters that you go out and talk with, have they moved a millimeter since the election? It depends on why they voted for him. Um, so there is a lot of people – who thought of him as this kind of bombastic showbiz guy who, of course, was going to overtalk and run his mouth, and that's what he did. But they thought he'd be good for business. Um, They were surprised to see him continue to 
keep going down that red meat base road. They thought it was all an act. Um, and those people are very, very wary at this point. Um, there's a lot of people that the the election was just so vitriolic and so many people kind of put their lives on hold because it, it did seem very important to a lot of people. Um, you know, after the election, they just went back and hugged their families and went back to work and they haven't really been paying a ton of attention. Um, and then there's a lot of people who he's doing precisely what they wanted him to do. Um, he put in the he tried to fight for the ban, um, which right. they approved of. They got Obamacare, which they approved of. He, you know, is doing all of this stuff. And those people aren't the people who are sophisticated enough to quite understand what the trouble is with Erdogan's bodyguards getting into it. You know what I mean? Like those right. are folk who just basically like the top line campaign promises because they're Republican and they're low information. Um and then there's a group that's really struggling, that, that those ones are the ones I find fascinating um, because they can't they can't they don't like any of this. They think it's messy. Um, they think it's unbecoming. Uh, but they also seriously do not want the, they're, they're very serious conservatives, establishment conservatives, and they just don't know what to do. Because what are they going to do? Say they they can't go to Hillary Clinton. They like what are they supposed to do? And they're stuck with them now. Um, and so those are the ones that that I've been really. They just stop talking, stop talking entirely. Like yeah. they are having crises of conscience on a level that that I've never seen. So the have-nots of the country that voted for Trump, if his budget would be passed, which it won't, but if it were, and if his tax reform, his one-page tax reform that would be passed, which is really a tax break, they would be so much worse than than they already are. Is that, is that sinking again. in? Oh, a lot of them will never vote again. Okay. So they voted for Trump. The, the low-income folk that I know that voted Trump – um, you know, if you take out your your core Republicans, mm -hmm. of no matter right. where on the income scale, they're going to be Republicans. I'm talking about the ones who shift. Right. Yeah. Um, they didn't vote for Donald Trump for any particular reason except for they wanted Washington to stop doing what it was doing. They wanted they wanted to send a message. This these are your anti elite voters. Yeah. Um, and they're not anti-intellectual elite the way that the intellectual elites like to imagine themselves being persecuted by the poor. Um, they're anti-backroom club. They're anti-inequality. They're anti-power centering at the top. And they don't quite understand how to articulate that. So you've got this guy that runs up and he tells them, oh, yeah, this whole system's super corrupt whole thing's corrupt. And they went, we love you. And then he talked like, you know, you would hear in a bar on the lower end of the income scale. And he was really bombastic. And, you know, it's rigged, right? Yeah. Everything's rigged. The whole thing's rigged. All of these people are criminals. And if I'm in that position, I think my life's rigged. <laughs> right. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm just here because I got bought everything. I mean, they they could appreciate that's what they appreciated when when you hear people say I appreciated his honesty. He was honest about lying to them which is the first time any politician has ever done that. And 
they thought the whole system was so bad already. Everything was so completely hosed already. Government shutdowns, all of the Congress is acting like children. We can't get anything done. We're running out of water. I mean, this is bad. So they voted for the guy that everybody in Washington hated. Everybody in the media hated. Everybody said he can't win. He can't do it. That's not how politics is played. We do it this way. And they went, <laughs> watch us that you're going to have to deal with this guy. And he's going to tell you, I can buy you. And you're going to have to answer him because we can't tell you that you're being bought, but he can. And and it really was just an angry, you can't have this like you want it. We will come to your castle. Um you know, and I don't think that there – I've heard a lot of people go, you know, it's just not even worth voting. He's worse than any of them ever were. That's – there's not even any point. They're never going to hear. They're so never, already low voting totals will be even lower. Yeah, this is definitely depressed. Um, anybody – well, not anybody, but I, I would say enough of the people that I know that are low income that voted for Trump were, were from that perspective and are that disappointed. Um, that I would, I would imagine you'll see a measurable depression. Maybe not a huge one, but measurable. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change. They're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Are you angry that Hillary Clinton? That's a given. Uh, are you angry at Hillary Clinton or her campaign? Um yes, but actually in the way that I'm angry at everyone. Like I would have loved to see more canvassing and we can post mortem the campaign and the mistakes it made until the cows come home. It should have been a walk. And it wasn't. And that's only partially Hillary Clinton's fault. Like She right, wasn't the right. greatest candidate. And frankly, she should have known better than to run. Um, she shouldn't have risked the country for her own legacy. And I'm a little, come on. Um, but I think that everybody who is in power at this point is responsible. Like we as a society are responsible for the state of politics that got us a demagogue. Like we would not have been open to anybody playing in the elections if the system was working properly, if we had a properly functioning republic. Um, and I think that anybody who's been in charge of, of getting the republic to the place that it is right now ought to be looking in the mirror and going, how much of this is my fault and how much of this can I fix? I, I don't know how to describe this, so I'm just going to jump in. I'm pissed off and, and I'm just really, really angry. But I don't know exactly who and what I'm angry at. Yeah. And my targets keep moving, not not by the week or month, but by the hour, by, by the minute. 
Welcome to it, Raging Against the Machine, man. <laughs> it's, it's, and, and, and I don't know what to do with it. I've actually been observing to people that um, folk who have lived in poverty um, have had an easier time dealing with this than, than people who haven't because we are already used to a whole bunch of faceless but also specific places to blame for our own misery and officials that can't get basic paperwork done and then screw you in the deal um, and goalposts that keep shifting and promises that that aren't kept. And so for me, I'm kind of looking at it and, and I actually had noticed um, that I'd gone back to like suddenly there's Easy Mac in my cupboards where there hadn't been for a couple of years. I'd gone off Easy Mac and it's my comfort food, right? And so sure. like as soon as I started feeling, oh, oh, we're back into gaslighting and then like three weeks later, I didn't even think about it. Like I'm buying an Easy Mac at the store um, because I really am kind of getting back into that mental space of, of, oh, okay, well, it's us against this kind of grinding, faceless, horrifying thing that's going to ruin our lives that we can't control. Fantastic. Um, only this time I can afford wine, so it's much nicer. <laughs> <laughs> um but you know, I think I think the thing that you have to do is is understand that when there is no one person to be angry at, it is because it is the fault of the system. Um, and and when we when we make uh, jokes about you know raging against machines or burn it all down or it's a trash fire or something like that, what we're really saying is that there is no one solution. This is going to take a serious societal overhaul. There is nobody we could get removed from office without us having to deal with the fact that all of this has happened now. Like regardless, Donald Trump could be sent to Rikers tomorrow for treason for the rest of his life, and we're still going to be dealing with a political landscape in which the GOP will not condemn a large candidate body slamming a reporter. They won't right. condemn it. That's the landscape. He should so, apologize. Right. But, but, but it, we're I guess not going to say voters, it's wrong. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, and so, you know, that's the landscape. So Trump isn't the problem. Trump is a symptom. And if if we carry on this path, there's going to be another Trump. And God help us if he's any smarter. And God help us if he's got any self-control because he won't be buffooning around the world making a laughing stock of himself. Like, what if we got a smart Trump next that, that could demagogue, that could go to the populace like he has? So the problem when, when you're that mad, you have to start thinking more radically of, of in, what do we do to fix the underlying rot? Like, do we go maybe beyond pass first the post or first pass the post voting? Do we go to ranked preferences? Do we, you know, are the parties switching? Do we go to public financing and encourage third parties? Do we go to, you know, public financing for all elections so that there is no dark money? Do we outlaw super PACs? Like, what do we do that is fairly radical that's going to kind of stave off what's happening? Because another thing we're not thinking about is we are going through the middle of a technological and digital revolution oh, yeah. of, of late and what that's doing to society and to work and to communication and to politics. When we're thinking, how do we fix politics? We're not thinking about the fact we're having to do it against the backdrop of society also having to learn how to internet. Like, how do you deal with the fact that any crank who hates a politician can get on Twitter 
and say horrifying things to him and the siege mentality and like i'm a public person on twitter let me tell you like there is a siege mentality where it's like me and my friends the ones i know would never say something like that against everybody else who might come and attack me and i have to actively work to, to take critique well and to have an argument or a debate because it, it like I'm always on guard for it to start getting trolly and like gross. Um, you know, and so to try to to do politics against that same kind of simultaneous background, I think, is is also really difficult. But I take heart in the fact that reporters used to carry around daggers to deal with members of Congress um, and that it used to not be uncommon for Congress people to, like, beat each other up. And that at one point, like, a vice president Might shot a dude. <laughs> like, yeah, like... Aaron Burr shot a dude and like if you think these politics are dirty then I dare you to go read Adams and Jefferson oh yeah like so it's not like we've never been here but the problem is we are in revolutionary times we are in times that transitive we are in times that are that that shifting and while we didn't just leave a mother country and decide to declare independence we are going through times that tumultuous I sense and this could just be me but you're sort of my reality check sometimes. Oh, God. I know. I'm in trouble, right? <laughs> I sense a, a an anti-intellectualism in the country like I've never sensed before. And that is another thing that frightens me. And I don't know how we get around that. It, so first, is that a proper assessment? Or, or is I it think just no. I think it's filter? there. No, it's it's definitely there. But I I do parse out the difference between anti-intellectualism and anti-elitism. Um, so you know there are plenty of people who would prefer to believe that vaccines cause autism because that gives them some sort of sense of control. Right. And a lot of a lot of um, willful ignorance is about people's own control over the world and the magical thinking. Um, The anti-elitism, I think, is often misread as anti-intellectualism because they're always going for people who are themselves intellectuals. Um, And I think that there's a lot of uh, causality that gets conflated there. Um, For example, I I use the uh, intersectionality a lot which is if you understand the academic concepts of intersectionality, it it is a wonderful and multifaceted thing. If you understand the internet definition of intersectionality, it is, um, you know, frequently used and misused as a way to shame legitimate discourse by people who don't understand it. Um, So then what happens is the people who are on the receiving end of those folks that have taken this academic theory and twisted it out and used it for, you know, whatever they understand it as, then those people who are on that receiving end blame the academics because they're the ones who are bringing up all of this new fangled whatever. And and I see stuff like that happen in, in a lot of different spheres and a lot of different um, theoretical frameworks. And I frequently want to go, you, you know, you're, you're yelling at a thing that doesn't exist. But then I also want to tell the academics, you know, you can speak in less than eight syllable words and not be a <laughs> jerk to somebody who's speaking in layman's terms. Sure. Because I think that there is a lot of circling the intellectual wagons that goes on. Um, I know I... I I experience a lot of it because I I work in an intellectual sphere, but I have no undergrad. Um, And so I frequently 
am am exposed to uh, some some gentle ribbing, we'll say, um, or because my, you don't have initials right, or my, behind your name, right? Or, or my ideas are discounted, or I'm told that I don't quite get it because I don't statistics, and so how could I possibly understand a sociological study? And I'm like, right, but I can read, <laughs> um, and and so you know, there's a lot of that going on. I I think that. There is an the anti-intellectualism, I think, is a knee jerk to the anti anti-intellectualism. Like, I think it's just factional like everything else. And it's chicken okay. and egg because the number of times I get told, oh, yeah, you're just a redneck. And, you know, the folks out in the country, the and, and again, you, anywhere on social media, you can go and find a liberal saying, well, you know, the the barely high school educated, barely literate, barefoot redneck living out that that elected Trump and rah, rah, rah. And I'm like, okay, so A, facts are facts, data's data, you're wrong. B, why would you say that? What, what does that gain you? What does that do? Right? Um, and so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of anti going around the country. And I think you could say there's an anti anything strain and you would find it. it. You would be right. There's very few people in America right now are defining themselves positively. We're defining ourselves in the negative of, well, I'm not a Trump voter or I'm not a racist or I'm not a sexist or I'm not this or I'm not that. And, you know, the Trump voters are, well, I'm not, you know, a coward or I'm not anti-American. Um, you very rarely hear people saying like, oh, well, I'm an intellectual or I'm, you know, this or that or the other. It's always I'm not. So I think that, the, you know, that's going to translate into anti everything because then you have to justify why you don't want to be that thing. And then you get caught in that negative feedback loop. So this is related. It's sort of the last topic I wanted to get to. But but it's the whole concept of First Amendment and and free speech. I, I saw, if I if I saw it correctly, you sort of took a shot at Milo and oh, his I followers did, yeah. on, on on Twitter, and he certainly has been a a an, antenna of being despicable. Uh, how does free speech work into all of what you're talking about? I mean, I think it's why it's a societal question rather than a legal one, because free speech and and society working depends on people not abusing that. Um, For the government to not quell speech, then speech has to not disturb society to the point where we can't govern. Um, And I think that we need to grapple with that. I think, too, that there's a lot of people who don't understand that they have a platform and don't understand how much they're they're contributing to the public sphere because we like to think of ourselves as just, you know, this person. Like, how many people on this college campus walk around thinking, I'm just one student, nobody knows me, nobody hears about me, but then, like, they've got 5,000 people that see something they wrote on Twitter and they don't ever think about the fact that they're contributing <laughs> to this, this narrative and this norm. Right. Um, and I think the internet kind of crept up on us that way. And I think the cable news kind of crept up on us that way. Um, so, you know, I'm actually like, Milo's a big boy. He can handle it. He's one of the saddest people in the world in person, actually. Um, and and I think a lot of people that are that filled with hate would have to be. Um, I think that if you are willing to take responsibility for the import of your words, 
um, which is to say I take shots at a lot of people. I write for one cat. Um, yesterday, I said that Ben Carson uh, was actually Creflo Dollar in a zip-up Ben Carson suit. Um, <laughs> and I published that on the internet. So, you know, I, I do wrestle with that, though, of like, who who is a fair target and why? And what what's the limit of satire versus commentary? And in a time where, you know, people are body slamming reporters, do you have a responsibility to hit out at those people and, and make it known that it's unfair in a way that's going to make them listen because they're not going to hear the moralizing. They're not going to. But if you can write an article about them, that's like and then <laughs> the guy, bought, you know, then then maybe that will will at least make it known that it's being watched. You know, I we we all, I think, wrestle with it. Um, and, and the trouble is that everybody isn't wrestling with it because I don't think there's an answer yet. I don't think we know. Um, I do know that if everybody doesn't think about it, then the answer we get will be a bad one, which is why I've been, you know, talking about techno fashion <laughs> since circa November right. or October. Um, you know, a lot of these outcomes, if we aren't careful, democracy isn't something that's static. It doesn't just sit there and it's fine. It, it takes constant care. Um, and we've forgotten that lately. And if we don't remember right quick, then it's going to be a little too late. So I think, you know, that's both the most depressing and the most hopeful thing in the world because it really is just going to take everybody going like, oh, oh, you mean we're going to have to be the greatest generation? All right, fine. And then doing it. Um, you know, and if, if our great grandparents can go to war and punch Nazis, and certainly we can do it here at home. So I, I think we'll, I think we've got a shot at being all right and maybe better than we were before, but you know, it's iffy. <laughs> <laughs> Linda, thank you for talking with us. Uh, I, I, I love coming back and touching base because it's, uh, you always have a unique perspective. It keeps, you know, it keeps going, the news. It, it just it every does. time, like, I'm, I'm almost afraid to check the news now because I've been recording for an hour and like, yeah. I, that's a whole hour, dude. It's, it's a whole hour that you might have missed something. Trump's been overseas this whole time. <laughs> hey, be safe in your travels. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Today, we've been talking with author, activist, and journalist Linda Tirado about the average voter's reaction to the Trump presidency. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.